Well, good evening. Take out your Bibles and open them up to Genesis chapter 32 with me. Genesis 32. If uh, you remember last time we left off our, our friend Jacob and his uh, very large family and all of the blessings that God had given him, he'd left Laban, Laban chased him down and they had their meeting together and parted ways. And we pick up now, you think that, okay, he's, he's on the home stretch now, which he is, but he has one more huge obstacle ahead of him, and that's dealing with his brother Esau, who 20 years before, if you'll remember, we went th through that a few weeks ago, 20 years before, he had deceived his father into getting the blessing that was rightly his, but Esau, the last time we saw him, was enraged, said, as soon as my father Isaac dies, I'm going to kill my brother, and that message got to Jacob. So Jacob's got some fear about this meeting that he's going to have. So we leave that where he was with Laban, and it starts out chapter 32. It says, Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, This is God's camp. So he called the place Mahanaim. Now, that word that's translated camp there has several different meanings. It can mean encampment, it can meet, it mean an army camp, or even armies. It's translated, it's used in 1 Samuel 17, 1, when it said, the Philistine get, Philistines gathered their armies for battle, that same, that same word. And I believe that that's exactly what Jacob saw, was an army of God's angels. God sent them to, to him. He opened his eyes so he could see them. It's not recorded that anyone else saw them, but Jacob saw them. Jacob needed to see them. Again, he's got this huge thing ahead of him, and he needed to have that reassurance that God is with him. You remember when he first left his home, he had that dream where he saw the angels of God ascending and descending to the throne. And here he sees them again, this army of angels before him. Psalm 103.20 tells us that the angels are mighty in strength, they perform God's will, and they obey his voice. If you would, turn to Psalm 91. We see again God's protection for us as his followers. God's mighty hand with us. Psalm 91, beginning in verse 1. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions or wings. And under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand by your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Verse 11 for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now notice it says there, going back to verse 3, it says, For he who delivers you from the snare. And verse 4, he will cover you with his wings. He will protect you. He will take care of you. He will send his angels to take charge over you. 
We're told in the Gospels that the angels even ministered to Jesus. If you'll remember when he was out in the wilderness and he was tempted, 40 days he fasted, 40 nights, and then Satan came and tempted him. And afterwards it says the angels came and ministered to Jesus. And then again in the garden, before he went to the crucifixion, before he suffered and died in our place, we're told that an angel came and ministered to him. Hebrews 1.14 tells us that ministering spirits are, are sent to render service for our sake, for us as believers. Those same powerful angels, those army of angels, those mighty angels, God sends to do his will to protect us, to guard us, to watch over us. Now, I don't know if, many, if any of you remember back in 1990, I was a huge basketball fan back then, watched basketball all the time, and during the NBA playoffs that year, there was uh, a quote that was made after a game by Stacy King, who played for the Chicago Bulls. And his quote was, I will never forget this night versus the Cleveland Cavaliers, where Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points in the overtime victory. Now, that sounds impressive. That Stacy King combined with Michael Jordan for 70 points. What you might not know is, Michael Jordan scored 69 of those points. Stacy King made one free throw. It wasn't a 50-50 deal. And the same is true in our battles. These angels that God sends to, to come around us, God's mighty hand, God's wing of protection for us, isn't a 50-50 proposition. How often, so many times, we make it even worse. We make it 90-10, us 90, him 10 at best, or even worse, we don't give him any credence at all. We might pray, but then move out with no faith, trying to handle it all on ourselves. We see this where Jacob sees this mighty encampment. He has seen God work in so many ways. He's had a word directly from God. I will take care of you. If you remember, he said this a couple of times. I will take care of you. I will prosper you. I will be with you. Here he gets this vision again, but we see in verse 3. It says, then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom, which is down to the south of where Jacob is. He also commanded them, saying to his people, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says the, your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob after they'd met with Esau. They returned to Jacob saying, we have come to your brother Esau. And furthermore, he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. We see here again, and again, I, I can place myself in this so easily. He, is, he has heard from God. He's got a word from God. He has promises from God that he can stand on, that he will prosper him, he will protect him. He will bring him back to the land of his fathers. He has seen God work in an incredible way with Laban. Remember, he was worried about that whole situation, and God moved miraculously. He appeared to Laban in a dream and said, don't touch him. Don't touch my servant Jacob. Don't even talk negatively to him. And then again, now he sees this encampment of angels, yet he hears that his brother Esau is now coming with 400 men, and he gets scared. He gets worried. He's petrified. Now, 
It doesn't tell us here, but why is Esau bringing 400 men with him? Could it be that Esau's afraid too? Esau, Esau knows the promises that were made about his brother Jacob. He knows the inheritance that's coming. He knows these prophecies. He understands enough about God. He hasn't made him his own God, but he understands and has, has seen the power of God. Maybe he's worried about Jacob. So he's bringing 400 men, not for an attack, but for defense. I don't know. It doesn't say that, but I wouldn't put it past that. Yet Jacob, instead of going to that, instead of relying on everything that he has, he, he's, he's, he's afraid. He's fearful. And he steps out again in, in this whole probably 1% now trusting in God and 99% in his own understanding saying, I have to do something. I'm going to divide my family, divide my possessions, so that in case he attacks one of us, the other will get away. Hopefully it'll be me and the rest. I'm, I'm trying to stack the odds at least so that I have a 50-50 chance of getting away. How quickly he forgets. How quickly we forget. And as I'm thinking about that and I think of pillars of faith and incredible men of faith, I, I can't help but think of one of my heroes of faith in the Old Testament, and that's Elijah. We've talked about that before, where Elijah, he goes to the king and he says, it's not going to rain again until I say it's going to rain. Boldness. God then directs him step by step to the brook Cherith and then to the widow and onto that and then to Mount Carmel where he alone takes on all of the priests and prophets of Baal in a one-on-everybody contest. All of the people of Israel were too scared to come over on his side. There are, some of them are standing neutral, most of them on the other side. And Elijah throws down the contest. We'll build two altars. You build yours, I'll build mine. We'll sacrifice on, there, on the altars, and whoever's God provides fire, that is the true and living God. So the prophets of Baal go first, and they're doing all of their stuff, and they're doing all their incantations and cutting themselves and everything, and Elijah's just mocking them. Where's your God? Is he on vacation? Is he sleeping? He has power and boldness. And then when it's come his time, he says, all right, enough of you guys. He prepares the sacrifice on the altar, and he says, bring water. Bring buckets of water. Bring them. Just douse this thing. The water's pouring down the sides. It fills up the trench on the other side. He calls out to God. God sends fire down devours everything there, devours the sacrifice, the altar. Everything is taken up. Incredible victory. Incredible victory. Man of amazing faith. But we're told in 2 Kings chapter 19, right after that, the next day, Queen Jezebel says, oh, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to do to him what he did to my, the servants of Baal. And what does Elijah do? He stands up strong in faith? No. He runs away like a scared little kid. He runs away and he leaves his servants there and he goes off into the wilderness all by himself where God meets him there. Again, how quickly we forget. We see the power of God working in our lives. We see incredible things that God does. We read his promises in the word and we're empowered by that and we're encouraged by that and then we get a phone call with bad news and it's like, oh, man. We, we go to work and... We're, we're laid off of our job, and we're like, oh, it's all over now. Instead of, again, trusting in God with that. Well, encouragement for you. Turn with me real well. You don't have to turn with me real quickly. I'll read it to you. It's James chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, if I stopped the story after the, the Mount Carmel experience, you'd probably say, not my nature. 
But we see then as he moves forward the next day and he's faced with another trial and how he runs away and how his faith wavers, we can say, yeah, I can relate to that. But listen what James continues to say. Elijah, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He's got a nature like ours. But there was power in his prayer. There was power in the God that he prayed to. And there's power in your prayer. Regardless of what you're going through, regardless of if you've failed miserably this week in your faith, you just simply turn back to God. Confess that weakness of faith, trusting in him, and you watch him move. Don't let the enemy convince you that because of your shaky faith, the, the week that you're having, that your prayers are ineffective, that your prayers won't be heard. They will be heard. They will be answered. Don't you give up. Elijah is a man with a nature like yours, like mine. I love the fact that the Bible records for us not just the triumphs, but the failures too. Because if it was all these guys that just never failed, we'd have no hope in this walk that we go through. But we can look at that and we can draw hope from that. If God can use a man like Elijah in such a powerful way, he can use us in that way as well. Well, we see in verse 9 back in Genesis 32... So Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper, to you, prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with, for with my, my staff only I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two companies. You did all of this. I came with nothing, Lord, and look what you have given to me. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. An amazing prayer. Really a, a great outline for a prayer that we're going to look at first. But first, let's take a look at the, the transgression of things that, as to how they go. First off, Jacob's first response when he heard of Esau was to try to plan some peace on his own accord. Send his, his, brother, his servants out to meet his brother and try to plan for peace. When that didn't work, he resorted to panic. And then lastly, he comes to prayer. You know, if you flip that around, the first thing if you do if you go to pray... The Bible tells us when we pray and we earnestly seek him, we receive a peace that passes understanding. Instead of trying to get that first, go to prayer first. God gives you the peace, and then you avoid the panic altogether. You have that peace that passes understanding. Well, it's interesting when you think of the disciples, the 12 disciples, the, the others that followed Jesus around continually. They didn't ask him, teach us how to do miracles. They didn't ask him, teach us to walk on water. They said, teach us to pray teach us to pray. And a lot of people then, Jesus goes on and, and he, gives the, he says the Lord's Prayer and they focus on the prayer itself and they say, this is how we are to pray as though there is a, a rote type of thing. There's not a procedure to prayer, but there is a pattern to prayer. There's not a, a precision way to pray, but there is a process. There, it involves preparation and, and priority. And it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 14, verse 23. We get a glimpse. 
not at what the words Jesus said, but in who he was and what prayer meant to him and how he went about this process of prayer. And in that, I think there's some valuable keys for us. Matthew 14, 23, it says, And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Teach us to pray, Lord. And in the way he does it, in this one verse, we see three very important aspects. We are to pray continually. That is to be a regular part of our, our, our daily lives as we go through lives, to have that constant communication with the Lord, just offering up prayer. But there is time when we need to devote one-on-one, all-alone time with God. And we see this here. First of all, it says that he, after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain. He went away. He went away from all of the distractions. He went away to a place where he could focus on the Father only. And oh, how much we need to do that. We need to do that because we can get so busy in our daily lives that we say, okay, I'm going to set aside 15 minutes of my lunch hour just for prayer. And that's not a bad thing, but we sit at our computer and the phone still rings and we have all of these distractions going on. Even in the house. Yes, I can go into my prayer closet and close the door, but the kids are crying and things are going on and I can't get completely away. It tells us here, Jesus went alone by himself to the mountain to pray. You need to have a mountain that you can get away to, to pray. But it also says he went away to the mountain by himself. So not only did he go away, he went away alone. Yes, husbands and wives, you need to pray together. Make that a daily habit. Pray with your kids every day. Gather together corporately and pray. Men, we meet on Friday mornings at 6 o'clock to pray right here out in the foyer. I would encourage you to come and join us for that. First Sunday evening of, of, of the month, we're setting aside for an hour and a half of corporate prayer. We should pray together regularly as a group. But there is also an important part of prayer that is the alone time with you and God. Away from all of the distractions, alone. That needs to be a regular part of our prayer life. But notice also, it said he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and, he w- and when it was evening, he was there alone. So not only did he go away alone, but he was there a while. He didn't set aside five minutes or ten minutes. Jesus would go away for a while. It says when it was evening, he was still away in prayer. That takes time, guys. That takes blocking off time in your daytimer for just time with the Lord in prayer. We see this beautifully illustrated in our Lord. Now, prayer needs to be a priority. And in order for prayer to be a priority, guys, I'm going to be honest with you right now, that means it's going to be inconvenient. It's not going to fit right into your schedule. The devil will make sure of that. He will make sure your schedule, your daytimer is full completely. It's going to be inconvenient. But we see another part of our Lord in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Very early in the morning. He got away while it was still dark. Now, that's not hard to do the season we just came through. But give it a couple of months. When it starts getting light at 5 in the morning. How many of you know that there's two 4 o'clocks in a day if you don't work at, you know, in construction? I can't get up at 4 o'clock and pray. Are you kidding? i got to go away to work. I, got, I, I can't get up that early. I need that sleep. Try me on this and try God on this. 
It doesn't, it, we're not supposed to test God, but just try it. Just try it. And see if you don't have more energy to get through the day. If you devote an hour earlier than you normally get up just to have that quiet time with the Lord. I, I, I believe it wholeheartedly. I've used the quote before a couple of weeks ago, I think. I can't remember. Sometimes they kind of all come together. But where Martin Luther said, I pray two hours every morning except on really busy days. Then I pray three. And when you do that, and when we set that time aside for the Lord, it's amazing how our day goes much more smoothly, how you have more time at the end of the day, because he reveals things to us, he shares things with us, he, he gives us the energy and the strength to get through. Well, again, we can always say, I'm too busy, busier than Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16 says, but now even more the report of him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. As busy as Jesus was, and his fame started to spread, and people started coming from all over, all of his time was being occupied, it says, but he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Gang, if we're honest with ourselves, and we just take an inventory of our days, we are probably too busy to pray because we're too busy doing the things that we should be praying about and letting God take care of. We're busy trying to solve all of our problems as opposed to lifting them up in prayer in the morning, letting God solve them, and then move out in the day. Well, we see some, some great pattern and process in the Lord and in how he did that. But let's go back to our, our chapter 32 and take a look at the prayer of Jacob because this is a beautiful prayer. There's an outline here for some great things. And again, I am not one that is going to tell you you need to pray in a certain order and you need to make sure certain things are covered. But there are some great things in here that we need to take note of in our own personal prayer time. First notice that he says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, he recognizes who God is. He recognizes that he is the creator, he's the one in charge, and he's the one who made the promises. I'm coming to you. I recognize who God is. But secondly, he goes on and he claims the promises of God. He said, you said this, Lord, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. It's important that we know the promises of God. So that in, when we're in our Bible study time and you're reading and you come across a promise of God, write it on a sticky note. Circle it in and make a note in the margin. This is a promise. I can claim this. Memorize it. And lift those promises up to God in your prayers. Not to remind him, by the way. He doesn't forget. But to remind us that he has made these promises to us. The promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. The promise that he will never allow a temptation or a trial to come into our life that we cannot handle with his power. He will always give us a way through that temptation or trial. That's a promise that he has made. It's a promise that we hold on to, that he will work all things together for good, for those who love him and are called to his purposes. He will do that. That's a promise. He promises. He says, I know the plans that I have for you. I personally don't know them, most of them, but he does. And he promised that those plans are for a future and a hope. We need to claim those things. God, I don't see it right now, but you promised this. And that encourages us. That reinforces us. Notice also verse 10. He says, I am unworthy. 
We have to have a heart of humility. When we go to God in our prayers and we make demands of God as though we deserve something, we are completely out of line. Again, recognizing who he is and who we are. He is God Almighty. We are unworthy sinners, saved by grace. He goes on to say, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and the faithfulness which you have showed your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. He lifts up the attributes to God. You're faithful. Your loving kindness blows me away. How you could love, we sang that earlier. I'm amazed by the fact that you could love me, but you do. You love me enough that you came and you died for me. Your, your, your patience with me, Lord, is incredible. Your long-suffering is amazing. Again, not to remind him, but to remind ourselves who he is and his, his love and his kindness and his long-suffering towards us. Now he goes on, verse 11, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from my hand of Esau. We need to lift our petitions up to him. We are told to ask him. The Bible tells us we don't have because we don't ask. We need to lift those petitions up. We need to say, Lord, this is the problem. This is what I'm going through. Again, not to let him know. He knows far greater than we do the problem that we're facing. But when we say it out loud and we lay it before him, we are in essence opening it all up and saying, God, I can't do anything about this. I'm trusting you with it. And he goes on. He says, after laying out the petitions, he says, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and, my mother, and the mothers with the children. Guys, we need to confess and admit our weakness, our lack of faith. If we again come proudly and try to bolster up our faith when it's not there again, we're not fooling him. We're only fooling ourselves. We need to confess that. Admit, Lord, I'm scared. I'm scared. I admit that I shouldn't be worried about this, but I am. Lord, strengthen my faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. Acknowledge that to yourself. And then he closes. He says, verse 12, For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Again, he repeats the promises. He repeats promises, and he owns them. He's taking control of this, and that's what we need to do in our prayer. Now, an interesting quote that I came across, and I didn't write down who said it, and I'm going to think of it here, or somebody helped me out, the missionary, the guy who has the or had the orphanages over in, in England that didn't have any, anybody help me out with that? Mueller, yes, George Mueller. He said this, and I love this quote, the most important part of prayer is the 15 minutes that follow after you say Amen. Because so often we can come out of our, our prayer time and walk away as though we never were just at the throne of Almighty God and start taking matters into our own hands and start doing things and moving out and, and, and getting in the way of what God planned on doing. And we see that as we continue on here. Verse 13, he prays this amazing prayer. Verse 13 says, so he spent the night there. They decided to camp there after the, after the time that they had set up there. So they spent the night. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels in their coats, colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. 580 animals. He, that speaks volumes for how God had blessed him. He's going to give 580 of them as a peace gift to his brother. 
and he lays it all out as he's continuing to roll this through his mind as to how he's going to solve the problem. He delivered them into the hand of his servant, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between the droves. He commanded the one in front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau and behold, he is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove saying, after this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept it, me. Again, this incredible, all the things that he's seen, the lapse of faith, this incredible prayer, but then he goes out and tries to manufacture this peace that he's going to have with his brother. And when we do that, aren't we always, when we do those types of things, flooded with uncertainty instead of having the peace that passes understanding, leaving it in God's hands, having all sorts of uncertainty is what's going to happen because we've now messed it all up again. We've stirred it all up together. He says, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. I will appease him. I'm going to take care of it. And then he says, then afterward I'll see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Again, instead of trusting in God with this, he takes matters into his own hands. Verse 21, so the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in camp. Now verse 22 says, now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the fjord of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Now, just in first reading of this, it might not sound like that's any big deal. It might even sound like that's a fearful thing that he was doing. However, if we understand the fact that the Jabbok runs east and west, and remember, Esau is coming from the south, Jacob was coming from the north. So he's sending all of everything that he has to the south side of the river, basically pushing everything all in. I'm, I'm going to go with this, and I'm going to trust. I'm, I'm giving that 10% trust in the Lord and 90% in the fact that he's going to be appeased by the offering that I send. It says, after that, verse 23, or verse 24, I'm sorry. Then Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, this is no ordinary man. Hosea Chapter 12, verse 4 tells us that it's an angel. And as we've talked of before us several times as we've gone through Genesis, the angel of the Lord, when he appears to, to, to different people as he's gone on to Abraham and others, this is none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself meeting him here. Now notice, as we go through this, and again, I want you to, um, I've asked you to do this as we've gone through it. Kind of take away some of the things that you've heard before. Not saying throw them away, just put them aside for a second as we go through this. And one of the things that I continue to encourage you to do is read through this, study through it yourself, pray through it. But many times I have heard this taught saying that Jacob wrestled with God all night in prayer. Notice what it says in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. It wasn't Jacob grabbing a hold of a of God or a man in prayer. As a matter of fact, we don't even, it doesn't even get down till further that Jacob knows who he's dealing with. 
But it says, a man wrestled with him. And it says, and when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. I see this again as an example where Jacob says this prayer and he's, God has been dealing with him and, and speaking to him and showing himself faithful, yet Jacob continues to rely on his own strength, his own ingenuity, and God says, we have to deal with this. And so God wrestles with Jacob over this. And, it, and we get the feeling as we're reading through this that somehow Jacob is feeling, you know, and reading the narrative like it's a pretty even match. No, it's not. No, it's not. God is allowing this to continue, and he allows us to continue in that as well. When we continue to rely on our own strength and push forward in our own efforts, he will send warnings to us, and he will talk to us, and he will speak to us through other brothers and sisters and through his word, and we're, we're confessing that and we're bringing it, but we continue to cling to it. Eventually, God is going to have to wrestle us hard. He's going to have to hit us hard. And many times, many of us can relate to moments where God has just got us to the mat, where he's got us totally laid out and he has our full attention. And it tells us again in Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, speaking of this very thing, verse 3 it starts, it says, In the womb, speaking of Jacob, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Jacob had to be broken. He had to get to the point where he had to relinquish his own plans, his own ideas, and trust completely in God's plans and God's ideas. It wasn't, I, I, I got to think, it wasn't a pretty sight to see. I gotta, it, it says that they wrestled all night. There was a, there was a serious battle going on. And finally, God reaches out and touches his hip and dislocates his hip. Now, that could have happened right up front. And there are times in our lives where God deals with us right up front. Why doesn't he do that all the time? Because he desires that with us, that interchange with us, that we learn to rely on him and to take things to him. There is a great principle in wrestling with God in prayer. Not to, again, get our will done, but to work through that. If, if you'll turn with me to, uh, where did I have this down? Luke 18. I didn't make the note there. Luke chapter 18. We see Jesus giving us a parable here about, about going to God earnestly in prayer. Luke chapter 18. Verse 1 tells us, Jesus, now he was telling them a parable to show that all the times they ought to pray and not lose heart, saying in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. 
But note the end of verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? We can, we can wrestle with God over these things and continually bring things to God in prayer, but if we continue to, to rely on ourselves and rely on our own efforts, we're not truly trusting him in faith. And God, Jesus asks the question, when he returns, will he find faith on earth? And I'm challenged by that. If he were returned today, would he find faith in me? Would he find faith in me? Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now he goes on to say from there, and by the way, that means continue to ask, not just one time, continually ask, continually seek, continually knock. But he goes on from there to say, if, if your earthly father, if you were to ask your earthly father for a loaf of bread, would he give you a stone? If, he were, if you were to ask your earthly father for a fish, would he give you a, a snake instead? Now, doesn't God, who loves you far more and knows how to bless you abundantly, do far greater than even your earthly fathers would? And what I see again in that, and what I understand from what, I'm, what we see in this wrestling with Jacob, is it's not to get what we want. Jacob, if he's trying to get what he wants from God, he loses God breaks him down. He, he, he said again in Hosea, he's weeping before God, finally, broken man. Finally surrendering to God in his will. There is a, a great prayer that was found in the pocket of a Civil War soldier at Gettysburg that was killed in action. But they found this prayer written in his pocket. It said, I asked for strength that I might achieve. He made me weak that I might obey. I asked for health, that I might do great things. He gave me grace, that I might do better things. I asked for riches, that I might be happy. He gave me poverty, that I might be wise. I asked for power, that I might have the praise of men. He gave me weakness, that I might feel a need for God. I asked for all things, that I might enjoy life. He gave me life, that I might enjoy all things. I received nothing I asked for. He gave me everything I hoped for. That's a powerful prayer. But there's so much truth in that. So much truth in that. We wrestle with God over the things we think are right. And if we don't get it the way we want it, we go out and try to push our way through. And I, I see, again, that's played out so much with Jacob in this scenario. But if we lift our requests to God, trusting again in his loving kindness and, and his mercy and his love towards us and his long suffering with us and just trust in him for the results, we get everything we could have ever hoped for. So Jacob cries out to God. His hip now dislocated. Verse 26 says, then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let go unless you bless me. By the way, that sounds like he's being directly disobedient to God. God says, let me go. And he says, I will not let go unless you bless me. Until you bless me, God loves to hear that prayer. We're broken. We're broken before him. And we hold on to him and say, God, I'm holding on until you bless me. And he loves to pour out his blessings on us. Verse 27 says, so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. He changes his name from Jacob. This is your old nature, Jacob. This is who you used to be. You are now a new man. You have a new name, Israel. So Jacob, verse 30, named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose up, rose upon him just as he crossed over, over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Now, I came across a, a great uh, devotion here this morning. I want to share with you on this. A.W. Tozer, who I just love to read. If you've never read any of his stuff, get, a, get one of his. We have the devotion book in our, in our, our bookstore. It's a, a, just a, f- a phenomenal man of God. But it says, revert, referring to these verses, it says, The enemy never quite knows how to deal with a humble man. He is so used to dealing with proud, stubborn people that a meek man upsets his timetable. And furthermore, the man of true humility has God fighting on his side. Who can win against God? Strange as it may seem, we often win over our enemies only after we have been first soundly defeated by the Lord himself. God often conquers our enemies by conquering us. When God foresees that we must meet a deadly opponent, he assures our victory by bringing us down in humbleness at his own feet. After that, everything is easy. We may have put ourselves in a position where God can fight for us. And in a situation like that, the outcome is decided from eternity. I got to think, Jacob is thinking, after God dislocates his hip, great, I can't fight or run. I'm, I'm stuck here now facing what you have in front of me. And that's right where God wants him. Now, verse 32 says, speaking of this, Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. From that I hear that, guys, when the Lord deals with us in that kind of way, when he brings us to the mat, if you would, and dislocates our hip, if you would, we need to tell others why we're limping. We need to share with others about that. Don't tell them you have arthritis. Tell them why. Tell them why. Jacob obviously did, and it so impacted the people that, follows, that followed after him, his descendants, that they set this practice in place. God didn't command that, but in remembrance of what God did to their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Jacob, they, they followed this practice. He breaks our self-reliance so he can bless. Now, real quickly, I just share with you, and I shared it before, but bear with me. I went through a time in my life where I was a prodigal. I grew up in a Christian home. I accepted the Lord as, as my Lord and Savior early on in my junior high years. I made him my personal Lord and Savior. I followed him closely on through high school, but I went off to college away from home, away from the godly influences around me, and I got sucked into the world. And I was there for years, 12, 13 years, where I just walked away from God. I was never comfortable in it. There were nights where I'd cry myself to sleep knowing that I was doing wrong, that I was going against God's will for me, but I'd wake up the next day and go right back out to it. And it was a night about 13, 14 years ago now. I'm watching... Charles Stanley on television, and he's sitting there, and I'm, he, I'm totally glued. He is talking to me. There might be a million other people watching, but there's one person he's talking to, and it's me. And the, he said, 
He said, you need to pray and give it all up. You need to surrender it all, and it's the scariest prayer you're ever going to pray, but you, you pray, God, whatever it takes, I'm yours. And I remember getting down on my knees in my living room and praying that prayer, and it was the scariest prayer I've ever prayed. I literally had one eye open because I was expecting something to happen right now. <laughs> but God slowly from that moment took away the things that were so I, what I thought were so important, the things that I was manipulating, the things that I was turning, the things that I was changing, and he took it all away from me. All of the things that I was asking him to bless, he took away and he gave me far more, far more. And I have to tell you, one of the things that he took away from me was my safety net of all of my savings, all of the money that I had, this business that I had built. He took that all away from me. And you know what? God has used that dislocated hip, my limping through that, to minister to other people who have gone through difficult times, who have been out of work, who have lost their business, going through those things, and they look and they ask, how did you do it? And that's, I get to share that testimony. We all go through those things. We all are going to face those things. We're all going to have the Lord break us in certain ways. We don't hide from that. That's nothing to be ashamed of. That's something that we wear as a badge of honor towards him, honoring him completely for the work that he's done. Share it. Chapter 33. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Probably not what Jacob was expecting. Here he is trying to figure out all of these ways to bribe his brother, to pay him off, to somehow appease him, to somehow lighten the punishment, to maybe sneak by. And here Esau is thrilled to death to see him. Now you remember back a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the yoke that the, 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 the um, prophecy given to Esau that he would have this yoke from his, from his younger brother, but he would eventually break that yoke. And we talked about that being a yoke of bitterness and anger. God changed Esau's heart. That's the only explanation for it. It was nothing that Jacob had done. It was nothing Jacob had planned. It was nothing other than God working in that situation. Even though Esau wasn't a God-fearing man, God still changed Esau's heart. Only God can do that. And again, God had to get all of this other stuff out of the way so that Jacob could see it. He can't run. He can't fight. He's got the problem right in front of him, and God comes through, as he always does, in his way. Well, verse 5 says, He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children, this, this is Esau, who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterwards, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And, and he said, To find favor in your sight, my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, take my present from my hand, for I have seen your face as one who sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. 
Please take my gift, which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him and he took it. I see two things here real quickly. If you are dealing with a broken relationship, if you're dealing, if you have someone in your past that you've had a problem with, brothers, sisters, parents, maybe a relationship, maybe another Christian brother or sister in another church from a while back, God calls us to be reconciled to them. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, if you come to the altar with your offering and you have something that the Lord lays on your heart, you have offended someone, you have a problem with someone, you've done something or they have against you, you go fix that. You go fix that. And you might say, how? How in the world can I do that? Well, you step out in obedience. You trust God as he has told you to do this. And here's a couple of things that I see in this that is, that is just great. First of all, neither one of them brought up the past. Hmm. Isn't that so much? Well, if we're going to get past this, we've got to sit down and talk this through. We've got we to bring this up right now, and we've got to hammer out these couple of things that were a disagreement 20 years ago. No, you don't. No, you don't. You leave that lie. God has changed hearts. God has moved on you. God has moved on that other person, and you just move forward. Neither one of them bring it up. Esau didn't bring it up. Jacob certainly didn't want to bring it up. Trust God that he has healed the relationship, and you move forward. Also, though, notice that both men were content, content with where they were, content with where God had them. Esau says in verse 9, I have plenty, my brother. I don't need this. Verse 11, Jacob says the same. I have plenty. God has dealt graciously with me. Both men were content. The key is contentment. Being content with where you are. As Paul, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, godliness plus contentment is great gain. Now, people could, you could look at this and say, well, of course they were content. They both had plenty of stuff. Well, stuff doesn't make you content. And Paul tells us in Philippians 4.11 that he'd learned contentment, whether he had a lot or whether he had nothing, because God is in control. I'm content, Lord, with wherever you have me. If God has placed it on your heart, and I pray that you would just seek the Lord. This doesn't mean that you go back and you rack your brain about, oh, who have I ever offended? Who have I ever? No, no that'll be a full-time job. We've all offended plenty of people. But if the Lord lays someone on your heart, especially in a time of prayer, when you are before him offering up your prayers, and he lays someone on your heart, you move forward in faith, and you trust that. You're content with where God has you, and you don't bring up the past, and you watch God work. Well, verse 12, it says, Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that my children are frail, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure, according to the, the, the pace that the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to meet my Lord at Seir. Which, by the way, he never makes it there. They they. they finally hook up again many, many years later when their father dies. But verse 15, Esau said, please, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, that what, what need is there? Let me find favor in your sight with my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, and he built for himself a house and made booths for the livestock there. Therefore, the place is named Sukkoth. Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth with a limp with a limp, a constant reminder of what God had done, about God, how God had broken him. And if you're in one of those times in your life where you feel a little distant from the Lord, 
go back. Where, where did God touch you? Where was, where was that time in your past where God touched you and then showed himself so faithful afterwards? There's many times I go back to that moment when I prayed in my living room. When I'm, when I'm struggling with something and, and I'm thinking, Lord, I'm up against something right now and i got to remind myself, Lord, that night I said, whatever it takes, whatever you bring my way, I will, I will walk that path because I know you're with me. I know that you will never leave me. I know that you're not going to allow things to come against me that I can't make it through with your help. You'll always provide a way of escape for me. You're going to work everything together for good. I go back to that time. I go back to it often. We all need to do that. Remember how faithful God is and where, where he met us. Now, he didn't stay long in Sukkoth because primarily, I believe, God didn't let him be comfortable there because he's not in the promised land yet. He's still on the wrong side of the Jordan. So he goes back, and that's where God called him. Go back to the land of your fathers. So verse 18 says, Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he, had, when he, had came, when he came from Padanaram, and camped before the city. He, he bought a piece of land where he had pitched his tent, and from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of silver. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Heroi Israel, which is God, the God of Israel. Now we're going to see as we move into this chapter next, chapter 34, if you'll remember back to our, our time with Abraham and Lot when they parted ways, and Lot realized, and we, we know this as we look through it, that the, he knew the, the, what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he said, well, I'll pitch my tent outside. We don't want to be anywhere near evil and, and worldliness. We don't want to see how close we can get to the fire. And unfortunately, when we get into chapter 34, we're going to see the problem that, that arises because they camped outside of a place that was an idolatrous, godless place. Well, we'll pick that up next time, but let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, we are amazed by you. We are amazed by you and how you love us. And Lord, if we're all honest right here, we know that our faith wanes at times. Lord, our prayers might sound great, but our hearts at times, as soon as we say amen, move on to our own plans and our own schemes and our own way of dealing with things. Lord, we lift our hearts up to you now and surrender that to you. Ask that you would change us. Lord, that we would see your model in prayer, that, that you took that time to get away, to get alone, to pray for, for an extended period of time, Lord. And, and as we see even here with Jacob, Lord, let us hold on in prayer, seeking your blessing and your guidance and your direction. Lord, if we need to be broken, break us. And Lord, give us boldness to move forward from that, proclaiming your glory, following in your steps, and telling others about it. Lord, you've called us for a purpose. You've called us for a reason. We love you. We want to honor you. Thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the, the stories of, of these people. Lord, we thank you for the story of Jacob. We thank you for the story of Elijah, that we can look to these, these people and we can take away truth from it. Lord, let us apply that truth in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless.